This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book in PDF. The title of this book is That You May Prosper, Dominion by Covenant by Ray R. Sutton. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 14 Conclusion Little by Little I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and possess the land. Exodus chapter 23 verse 30 We come to the end of our study of the covenant. The final question to be answered is, how do we establish a society based on the concepts presented in this book? I raise it because I do not want there to be any confusion about how a Christian society is created. I do not want the reader to leave this book thinking a covenantal culture comes from the top down, meaning by some theocratic elite forcing everyone to be a Christian or believe a certain way. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God told the Israelites that their biblical culture would come little by little. It did not come suddenly or overnight. It came gradually. The covenantal society that I have proposed can only come the same way. That is, if it is to survive, it must come about from the bottom up. Sure, the reader can implement the covenant structure in his home and can seek to establish it in his church but its fulfillment in society at large will be much more difficult. It can only successfully come about and stick if it takes hold at a grassroots level through evangelism. The expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome serves as an example. Jesus says at the beginning of Acts, You shall receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This verse summarizes the spread of the gospel from one part of the world to the rest. It began in Jerusalem and ended up in Rome. The method was little by little evangelism, just like the land of Canaan. Yes, Acts parallels the book of Joshua. Joshua is the account of the conquest of the land. Acts is the story of the conquest of the world. But there is one striking contrast. Joshua took the land by use of the sword, even though it played a secondary role. None of the apostles used the sword to spread the gospel. Why the difference? Joshua, although a type of Jesus Christ, was under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a covenant of the flesh, graphically portrayed in the sacrament of circumcision, and, if anything, the Old Testament teaches that the kingdom of God could not be established in the flesh, meaning by the sword. The Garden of Eden was sealed off by a flaming sword, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, prohibiting re-entrance. Man could not return to that particular garden by a carnal weapon because his sword could not stand against God's. Even David, a great man of God, was unsuccessful in creating God's kingdom. He was a man of war, so he was not allowed to build the temple. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 3 When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1, verse 6 They were expressing their confusion about the nature of the kingdom of God. They still thought it would be a political order, that is, a kingdom established by the sword. They were wrong. The next verses in Acts speak of a new regime. The new covenant kingdom is created by the Spirit. God had conquered Jericho by his might, to be sure, but the Holy Spirit had not come in all of his historical fullness. Christ had not yet come in history. Israel needed to use the sword, but Israel ultimately failed. The church succeeded. In Acts, the Spirit of God went forth and created the beginnings of a Christian world from the bottom up. The instrument the Spirit used was evangelism witnessing. The role of the witness is twofold. Positively, he stands before men and the courts of the world, and he testifies of the resurrected and living Christ. Peter, John, Stephen, and Paul all became witnesses in the courts of man. 
Indeed, Acts tells how God sent them before Jewish and Roman courts and even into prison for this reason. The task of evangelism is the challenge of being a witness in the unbeliever's place of holding court. As we see in Acts, this can be a place of education or doing business, as well as an official court for passing judgment. Acts 19 and 16. The idea is that God sends his witnesses before man's seats of judgment to proclaim God's judgment, particularly through Christ. Much has been said and written about evangelism, so I will not spend any more time on this phase of little by little covenant expansion. Besides, I have already spent some time developing this point in the fifth point of covenantalism, chapter 5. The sword cannot hold the inheritance for the future. Only education, missions, and evangelism can. Also, I pointed out in the Great Commission mandate that the gospel was to be spread household by household, a very bottom-up approach to witnessing. Covenant Lawsuit It is the other bottom-up aspect of being a witness that I need to address, a negative side that is virtually unknown or neglected. Bringing testimony can also be a covenant lawsuit. Taking dominion in a pagan society is frustrating at times, these days, most of the time. One of the greatest concerns is the wicked people abortionists, pornographers, status politicians, etc., who stand in the way of the visible reign of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and following. How should they be dealt with? Because the biblical covenant commands Christians to be lawful, they are not allowed to use violence except in the event of self-defense and a legally declared war by proper civil magistrates. Are they therefore left only with what some Christian activists call a smile and a God loves you? No. The Bible specifies a special kind of lawsuit that can be filed with God against the wicked called a covenantal lawsuit. This biblical concept is consistently used by the prophets, many of their books being structured according to the Deuteronomic Covenant. With a covenantal lawsuit, however, the five points of covenantalism are all turned toward accusations against lawless covenant breakers and enemies of the church, calling down God's sanctions on them. Yes, a covenant lawsuit asks God to kill the wicked. God destroys the wicked one of two ways by conversion or destruction. So a covenantal lawsuit is not unloving, but it is the biblical method for taking dominion when opposition is met. I began the dominion section with the covenantal mandates. I close with what is perhaps the Christian's greatest weapon in the face of opposition, not a carnal weapon but a spiritual one. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. The covenant itself turned into a lawsuit before God. I use the book of Hosea as a model. Before considering it, let us learn something about the prophets and Hosea in general. Hosea, Prophet of the Covenant When Solomon apostatized, the number 666 was used for the first time as the number of apostasy. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14 He became the classic example of Adam, who was created on the sixth day and departed covenantally from the Lord. Solomon's apostasy was nothing new, however, because Solomon was like the old Adam, who was the first man who gave up everything at the enticement of a fallen woman. In Solomon's case, it was fallen women. God's judgment was to divide the nation, the same thing that was done at the Tower of Babel. Division is an effective way to restrain the power of sin. God used it time and again in the Old Covenant until Christ could come in history to reverse the powerful effects of sin. The nation of Israel was divided into two separate countries, Israel to the north with ten tribes and Judah to the south with two tribes. Although Israel to the north had more tribes on its side, it fell the fastest. There was not always safety in numbers, but Judah was not far behind. Neither was there safety in small numbers. When in sin, it really does not make any difference whether a group is large or small. During this period, God sent prophets to bring lawsuits against his divided nation. Some were sent to the north and some to the south. Hosea was a prophet sent to Israel. 
the ten tribes of the north in the eighth century before the birth of Christ. He was sent at a time which should be considered the last saving effort towards Israel. Jeroboam II was on the throne. Although this king was evil, God made one last attempt to turn the nation from its sin. 2 Kings chapter 14 verses 25 through 27. Hosea was part of that last call. Years prior to this, God had promised Jehu that his sons would sit on the throne until the fourth generation. 2 Kings chapter 10 verse 30. Jeroboam II was the last king to be succeeded by his son. All six of the following kings were either succeeded by means of assassination or themselves succeeded an assassinated king. God gave Jehu four generations. Hosea's message was the final invitation in the fourth generation. This was the amount of time allotted for cursing. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5. At the end of these four generations, Israel was cut off and dispersed around the world, never again to be assembled as one unit. Israel did not hear the message of Hosea, so God turned blessing into cursing. The Prophet Before developing the themes of the book of Hosea, I need to explain the role of the prophet. He did basically two things. First, he was a counselor to God and man. The first time the word prophet is used in the Bible comes in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. Abraham had gone back down to Egypt. God told Abimelech not to harm Sarah because Abraham was a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. The role of prophet was to intercede for man. He could go into the presence of God's high council court and receive special entrance. He would then be sent back to man to offer counsel. Second, he delivered covenant lawsuit from God against man. He was a special messenger bringing God's prophecy. Prophecy is a covenantal action. It delivers blessings and cursings. A better description is that prophecy is promissory in character, being in part conditional and in part unconditional. The promises are conditional in that they depend on covenant keeping or covenant breaking. Sometimes for this reason, what God says will come to pass does not happen. When God said to Jonah that Nineveh would be destroyed in three days, it did not take place. Why? Nineveh repented during the forty days given them. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. Did God lie? Did he just not know what was going to happen? No, on both counts. God cannot lie. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19. God knows what will happen ahead of time because he plans everything that does happen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. But God is a covenant-keeping God. His prophecies given through his messengers are in terms of the covenant always. He is hurling a lawsuit in the face of covenant breakers. Also, the promissory character of prophecy is unconditional whenever messianic in direction. For example, one of the marks of a prophet is that his words always come true. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 through 22. Whenever the prophet makes a specific prophecy about the coming of the Messiah or anything to do with him, it has to come to pass. If not, he is not a true messianic prophet. Hosea was an instrument in God's hands. He delivered the lawsuit to Israel. The form of this lawsuit is classic, being in the structure of the covenant. Not all the prophets follow the complete pattern, but they all began with this basic format. For example, they might start with stipulations or ethical section. Maybe they start with what is called an ordeal of jealousy, Nahum. But the fact that the prophets veered from the structure in such set forms indicates that the covenant formed the background of their lawsuits. Also, each prophet seems to speak to a particular commandment that is being broken. It is not as though other commandments are not being violated. Rather, all the given sins of the nation are viewed in terms of one key commandment. Hosea is an example of this. The primary commandment being broken is the seventh, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Through the book we will see that other commandments are being abused, but they are all arranged in terms of the seventh. Even so, however, Hosea follows the covenant to build his case, God's case, against the spiritual and ethical adultery of Israel. 
The covenant lawsuit should be viewed as both a prayer to God and a declaration to the corrupt society. So the outline of Hosea as a model lawsuit should be understood as a guide for the Christian who wants to know what needs to be declared publicly. The Covenantal Structure of Hosea 1. True Transcendence Hosea chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 2. Hierarchy Hosea chapter 2 verse 1 through chapter 3 verse 5 3. Ethics Hosea chapter 4 verse 1 through chapter 7 verse 16 4. Sanctions Hosea chapter 8 verse 1 through chapter 9 verse 17 5. Continuity Inheritance Hosea chapter 10 verse 1 through chapter 14 verse 9 1. True Transcendence Hosea chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 The first point that needs to be made in a covenantal lawsuit is that God's offenders have failed to acknowledge God as the transcendent Lord of the world. The prophet Hosea begins this way. Three of the transcendent eminent themes come through in the first chapter. First, the name of the book is Hosea, a variant of Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation. This is the idea of redemption. God sends a prophet to redeem Israel whose very name is redemption. He is the incarnation of the word of God to them. In his person, he portrays a God who is distinct and present. Second, the very first sentence of the book is, The word of the Lord which came. Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. Does this sound familiar to, In the beginning God created? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. It should, because the same idea is intended. Out of nothing he created them, and out of nothing he redeemed them from Egypt. The word, or revelation, came from God, distinct from man, to perform both functions. Here we see a very important prophetic principle. Interpretation precedes fact. God's word is before history chronologically. His interpretation of history is before time, space, and everything. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. All of life moves according to God's interpretation. Rejection of God's interpretation leads to cursing and acceptance to blessing. Either way, God's interpretation is first. Man is presuppositional. His presupposition is that the God of the Bible is true. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and following. He may be in rebellion to this interpretation, but he still knows it is true in his heart of hearts. Third, the first chapter presents God as the one who names. God instructs Hosea to marry a prostitute. Why? Hosea is a covenantal head. Because he is not like the individual, we should not try to build a case from Hosea for marrying prostitutes, just as Ezekiel's running naked is not a model for individual behavior. What happens to Hosea is a symbolic message for Israel. This incarnation is in the negative. Out of his marriage to the harlot comes children. Specific names are given to them. In a play on words after Gomer has given birth to a son, God tells Hosea, name him Loami. Loami means not my people. The point is that God's prophet who names gave his son a name implying loss of identity. He has the power to name and the power to take away a name. If Israel hears the message, the covenant will be recreated. If not, it will be destroyed. Only the God of the Bible could perform such transcendent, imminent actions. 2. Hierarchy Hosea chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 5 The second part of the covenant lawsuit should make clear that God's hierarchy has been violated. The real issue is a mediated system of judgment. God stands behind his authority. He stands behind it in history. Since hierarchy involves history, 
specific historical events of God's faithfulness should be cited, as well as a record of disobedience on the part of the individual or group of individuals being filed against. Hosea's lawsuit indicates the relationship between judgment and history by emphasizing the relationship between covenant faithfulness and peace with all the enemies around Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Acre as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, my husband, and will no longer call me Bali, my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 through 20. Notice the I will fulfillment pattern and how God refers to recreation, making a new covenant with the animals of the earth. In the Adamic covenant, this is the hierarchy section, Genesis chapter 2. Here, God speaks of making a new creation out of Israel. He even compares it to redemption from Egypt. The end of this passage highlights the major sins of Israel, idolatry and adultery. Notice that these two sins go together in Hosea's mind, just as they did at the end of the hierarchy section of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 24. Remember also that the second and seventh commandments fall into the hierarchical category. To worship another god is to pursue another groom. Hosea's bride symbolized the very kind of adultery God's wife, Israel, was committing. 3. Ethics Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 16. God likes to be reminded of his laws, and he desires that these laws be held up in front of the guilty. When John the Baptist the last Old Covenant prophet, saw Herod in sin, he went before him in public and confronted him. Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 and following. So this part of the lawsuit should include a specific list of the infractions against God's law. Chapter 4 of Hosea mentions for the first time actual commandments that have been broken. For the Lord has a case, lawsuit, against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 through 2. Hosea also begins to do something else in this section that falls in the ethical category. In the very last verse of the third chapter, Hosea referred to David and the sons of Israel. This forms a transition into the first verse of chapter 4 that starts off with an address to the sons of Israel. Both references turn our focus to the theme of sonship or image bearing. Sonship is defined in terms of bearing God's image. The two main ways of bearing God's image are through the offices of priest and king. The ethical section concludes with chapter 7, but eight forms of transition. They have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Chapter 8, verse 1. 4. Sanctions. Hosea chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 17. The fourth part of the lawsuit asks God to pour out his sanctions on the wicked. Deuteronomy tells how God blesses and curses. Both should be asked for, but in the case of the lawsuit, the specific curses should be requested and mentioned. Also, it should be kept in mind that Revelation speaks of plagues that are not referred to in Deuteronomy. These would also be appropriate sanctions to ask for. The first verse of chapter 8 opens, Put the trumpet to your lips, 
like an eagle the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is how the sanctions section of Revelations began. Revelations chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. It starts with a series of angels blowing trumpets. This instrument announces, as in the case of Jericho, the coming judgment of God. In the case of Hosea, the judgment is coming against the once faithful covenant nation Israel. The last verse of chapter 8 continues the theme of judgment when Hosea says of Israel and Judah, I will send fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Chapter 8, verse 14. Although the whole book refers off and on to the judgment that will come to God's people, chapter 9 seems to be devoted entirely to the subject. It starts off, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations, for you have played the harlot. Chapter 9, verse 1. Hosea goes on for the first time to mention the actual words punishment and retribution. Chapter 9, verse 7. Hosea's thrust is sanction. Because Israel has played the harlot, she will be disinherited. The last verse of chapter 9 says, My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. Chapter 9, verse 17. The judgment has been passed, and this means disinheritance. This sounds like the end of judicial sanction in Genesis, where Adam and Eve were cursed and sent out of the garden. But they were taken into a new inheritance because God had reclothed them. Hosea's emphasis carries us smoothly into the next section. 5. Continuity. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 14, verse 9. Finally, the lawsuit requests of God that he reestablish his covenantal continuity with proper people and land. Furthermore, in the course of this prayer and announcement, God is asked to disinherit the wicked and drive them away through conversion or destruction. The opening verse of chapter 10 starts on the theme of inheritance. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Chapter 10, verse 1. Israel appears to be rich in inheritance, but Hosea is mocking them. The richer Israel became, the more it used its inheritance to build liberal and pagan religion. The chapter follows with several declarations of disinheritance. The great disinheritance God will bring will be judgment on Israel's children. He says, Therefore a tumult will arise among your people, and all your fortresses will be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Chapter 10, verse 14. This sounds cruel, but we must remember that God judges covenantally. As families are brought into the covenant as family units, so they will be judged together. This happened throughout the history of God's covenantal people. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were judged together with their families. Numbers chapter 16. Akan's family was burned with him, Joshua chapter 7, and Ananias and Sapphira were judged as a covenantal unit in the new covenant, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and following. But in each case, God gives the family opportunity to take a stand against the sinful covenant head. The covenant is made with individuals as well as groups. As we have seen in each covenant, however, God makes for a way of escape. He offers a new inheritance. The last chapter of Hosea is one of the most beautiful expressions of God's promise of new salvation. But it is conditional. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Israel must return to the Lord to have all the blessings. Hosea closes with the following. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, symbol for firstborn son, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. 
I am like a luxuriant cypress, from me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Chapter 14, verses 4 through 9. Here the book ends with two classifications of people, covenant keepers and covenant breakers. These are the only two, each having opposite inheritances. The covenant breakers may appear to be blessed on the front end of life, but in the end they will lose everything forever. The covenant keepers, on the other hand, may appear to have nothing on the front end of life, but in the end, and even in this life, they have everything. Covenant keepers get to be like Job, greatly tested but richly blessed in this life and the one to come. Who files the lawsuit today? We should not leave our discussion of Hosea without bringing it into the new covenant. The question is, who files the lawsuit today? Can any individual curse someone he doesn't happen to like? Does the state file the lawsuit? Does the church? Jesus sheds some helpful light on these questions when he says, Where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Two things stand out. First, the reference to two or three is a formula used for legal testimony in the Old Testament. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence, literally, mouth, of one witness. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Second, Jesus applies this formula at the end of the section on church discipline. Thus, we should conclude that a covenant lawsuit can only be brought in the context of a church court or worship service, also a church court before God's throne, since the imprecatory judgment psalms, psalms 83 and 94, were intended to be used in worship. Individuals need witnesses in order to file a valid lawsuit with God, and certainly the state has no function in filing a covenant lawsuit before God. If someone wants to file an imprecatory lawsuit, he should appeal to the officers of the local church. If that church will not listen, one that will should be sought out. The imprecatory psalms are not to be treated lightly nor autonomously. They have a two-edged nature to them. If they are abused, they could kill the user. Conclusion Hosea comes to an end on the theme of legitimacy, concluding our study of the covenant as a lawsuit. Each step of the way I have tried to show the pattern of the covenant. Is it wrong for Christians to use the covenant lawsuit? Are not Christians supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin? No. God hates the sinner as well as his sin. Psalm chapter 11 verse 5. And since the church is the new Israel, Paul commands it to pray and sing the Psalms. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19. All of them, especially the imprecatory Psalms that call down God's destruction and conversion of the wicked. Psalms chapter 83, 74, etc. I have chosen a prophet to confirm that as Israel was built by the covenant, it was torn down on the basis of the covenant. Man gains dominion by covenant, and he loses it by breaking the covenant. Once again, as I have attempted to explain both the covenant and its application for dominion, we are reminded with richer understanding of Moses' words, So keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Deuteronomy chapter 29, 9. Now we know the words of the covenant are kept and applied in society little by little. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, 
where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.